I'm Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired. This week, we're tracing back to the roots of Roe v. Wade. Earlier in the episode, historian David Garrow described how the influence of the Roman Catholic leadership and hierarchy in Connecticut, New York, and Massachusetts played a role in the legal battles that emerged. Garrow maintains that had the Roman Catholic leadership not blocked the Connecticut State House in the 1960s from repealing an archaic and unpopular law that prohibited the sale and distribution of birth control, the landmark case Griswold v. Connecticut would never have happened. And without Griswold, there would not have been Roe. It's a striking reminder that the Supreme Court rulings can have some unforeseeable outcomes. Regardless of your point of view, the power and influence of faith-based lobbying organizations in Washington, D.C. and in state capitals around the country is significant, and that includes the Roman Catholic lobby. Back in 1973, a small group of pro-choice Catholics organized and founded a nonprofit with the explicit intent of confronting the power of the Vatican and its U.S. leadership body, the United States Catholic Conference of Bishops, the USCCB. They began as Catholics for a free choice. A few years ago, they changed their name to Catholics for Choice. The organization's voice and leadership is unique in a faith tradition that has an established hierarchy and leader, the Pope. The nonprofit, based in the United States, created a platform and an organizing vehicle for activists and Catholic leaders to speak out and, in many instances, oppose the guidance of the bishops. Not surprising, the USCCB over the years has issued a number of public resolutions and statements denouncing Catholics for choice, decrying the group as standing in opposition to Catholic teaching. Last year, the board of directors hired a new leader, Jamie Manson. This week, I spoke to her by phone from the offices of the organization in downtown Washington, D.C. Jamie Manson, welcome to the program. Excited to have you. I believe you've been in your position as president of Catholics for Choice for almost a year now. Yeah, just completed my first year. When it comes to issues of gender, particularly homosexuality and same-sex marriage and abortion, you know, some would use the word condemned by the Catholic Church, discouraged. Absolutely. Condemned. Condemned. (laughs) So you're this out-Catholic woman, and Hmm. you wanted to exercise and provide this leadership. What was the thinking by the board? Was there a strategic decision here? Help me situate that. Well, I, you know, obviously I can't speak for the board, um, but I think it's fair in my experience being an out queer person in the Catholic Church now for 14 years. There's been a lot more inroads made for on LGBTQ issues in the church than there have been on abortion or even women's ordination. It shows we've made progress on that issue. Clearly, I'm very bold. I'm courageous. People were loving what I was saying about young adults and the future of the church, but I was getting uninvited once people realized, oh, she's she's an out lesbian and she's she's not celibate. Um, she's you know in, in a relationship. So I think that was part of it. And then I had this, you know, it, very, you know, intensive training in Catholic sexual ethics uh, and theology. I had Sister Margaret Farley, Sister of Mercy, was was my teacher at Yale. And she is, you know, a groundbreaking thinker on these issues related to Catholic theology, ethics and sexuality and abortion. So I think there were a number of elements that made me the ideal candidate. And also, I still really love the faith. 
And I think you can't find that very often either. I think I, I had the elements that, that they were looking for. What is your vision for this year? Yeah, you know, most of my strategy comes from what I learned from Catholic Women Religious, and that is listen to the people on the ground, ask them what you need, ask them how best you can be of service. So that really is the backbone of our strategy for 2022. And what we're hearing is that we need to start having courageous conversations about abortion among Catholics, particularly Catholics who are progressive but are afraid of the issue of abortion and its moral complexities, Catholics who need more education around abortion. So we have a pretty strong education strategy this year. We bring people together and ask them to clarify their own values around abortion. So that that's really the backbone of our strategy is, is training, education, and clarifying our values and doing that deep, deep listening and, and conversation and dialogue that we think is missing and that we think will move the needle on this issue. There's just so much taboo and so much stigma around abortion in the minds of Catholics, and we need to destigmatize and educate. Who do you see as your target audience? You know, when I think of who my target audience is, I think of my friend, Dusty, who's a gay man, Catholic, has very Catholic parents. They live in Ohio, where there's some very stringent anti-abortion laws coming to the fore right now. And they're very sensible and they love their son and they support him and accept him. But they still voted for President Trump the first and the second time because he was the anti-choice candidate. And they just can never, ever imagine voting for a pro-choice candidate. Their faith doesn't allow it. So that's kind of my ideal. In the same way, they were able to change their values and their understanding on the LGBTQ issues, that through the same storytelling and education um, and reflection on Catholic social justice values can start to transform their minds and hearts around abortion, too. You know, what's so interesting about the example you just gave in which you're describing your friend Dusty is that his parents, it sounds like, were able to embrace him despite the teachings of the church. Right, right. Your mandate, your mission of educating and specifically destigmatizing the issue of choice with the American Catholic community, how do you see yourself tackling that? One in four people who get an abortion in the United States identifies Catholic. So that means the woman that's next to you in church or the woman that's handing out the Eucharist or is reading the uh, the scripture very well may have had an abortion. Women hold up the, you know, the fabric of the church. They really do. They do all the work. Like 85% of church workers are women. Let's think about how many of them have probably had abortions. And then the rhetoric you even hear from Pope Francis, who just a few months ago called a called abortion homicide. We need that church of encounter and that listening church that he keeps talking about, but he can't seem to apply uh, to women and pregnant people who have had abortions. So to me, it's storytelling, it's compassion, it's 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 education, it's it's all of those things. But I do think the heart of it is putting the human face on the abortion issue. How are you going to do this? I'm confident we create those safe spaces. We can do that. We've already done that with our faithful providers program where we have providers of abortion care, everyone from the nurse, the doctor, you know, the, the security escort who talk about why they support abortion access because of their faith, not in spite of it. One year in, what are some of the reflections you have about where the battle sits today? Well, it sits in a very precarious place. I think it's a very real possibility that Roe versus Wade could be struck down. Things have never been this dire. And what I would like 
people to understand is that abortion is used as an issue to activate the right wing. Uh, and I have been questioning, particularly the last year, how much this really is about defending life or respecting life or promoting life. And it's really about controlling the freedom, particularly of women, and trying to push a right-wing agenda that I think ultimately seeks to undermine democracy. You know, as I'm listening to you describe that, what I'm not hearing you talk about actually is religious theological decisions or decision-making. Mm-hmm. Um, not hearing you talk about preeminent um, scriptural calling. You see politics more than religion in play. Can you explain? Well, religious actors are clearly the primary generators of this movement, and Catholic ideology uh, has been used now for political purposes. These whole ideas about when does life begin and theories of life, we're all really fighting uh, Catholic theology that's been adapted for political purposes. So uh, I certainly don't want to say religion isn't part of this. It's all being generated by that political machine uh, that is, you know, right-wing Christianity. So I really want people to understand that's what we're fighting. But more than that, I want people to understand that the majority of Catholics support abortion rights and 68% do not want to see Roe versus Wade struck down. And so the right wing has been very adept at claiming the moral high ground here. But the reality is people in good conscience and in good faith do support abortion access. Can you talk a little bit more about that? When was that polling done? So the numbers we use are from Pew, the Pew study, and they have uh, an entire study on Catholics and abortion and people of faith and abortion. I think the most updated numbers were from 2020. What I'm hearing you say is that using this issue, activating it as a wedge issue becomes politically advantageous for one group. What I'm curious about is the leadership in the United States, the American Catholic leadership. Where are they relative to the concerted effort that you're describing here as having a very kind of focused political agenda? They are very focused on abortion. They have said in no uncertain terms that it is the preeminent issue uh, for um, U.S. Catholics. Uh, And in that way, I think this is part of the chasm that we're seeing between the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops and the ordinary lay Catholic in the United States, who has a much more sensible and I think theologically nuanced approach to this, that this, even abortion, is not a black or white issue, and that we have to take our social justice values and uh, the way in which we observe the experience of human beings and we look at the face of human suffering and really come to a much more sophisticated understanding on these morally complex issues like abortion. When you talk about the ordinary Catholic, who is that? So I think it's important to say that Catholicism is the second largest denomination in the United States. And if it were a denomination, former Catholics would be the third largest denomination in the United States. But when I say ordinary Catholic, I'm really reflecting on the phenomenon that is Catholicism, which is that it's more than a set of religious beliefs. It really is a culture. It really is an identity. Uh, It's a way of seeing the world through a very sacramental lens and with a real sense of of social justice and service uh, to the vulnerable and the marginalized. So that's the Catholic I'm talking about. I think a quarter of Catholics now go to daily mass, but that doesn't mean that people aren't identifying as Catholic. And I do think that if the U.S. bishops and uh, pastors of parishes were not perseverating on issues like abortion and same-sex marriage, more people would be going to mass, more people would be participating in the rituals, because people are very hungry for that aspect of the church, and they're being deprived. What I'm hearing you say is that the measure of being Catholic can't be discerned based on one practice, whether it's attending Mass or 
participating and taking kind of rites and rituals that the larger kind of body of American Catholics, all the different folks who identify as Catholic, uh, are not the same. And that diversity probably was more apparent during the election cycle of President Joe Biden, uh, America's second Catholic president, in which we saw the Catholic vote pretty evenly divided um, at the polls. And what exit polling showed was that this issue, abortion, played a very instrumental part in that. How do you see the discourse shifting with a Catholic president? I think it's it's really shifting uh, because this is the first unequivocally pro-choice Catholic president. And we also have a pro-choice Catholic Speaker of the House and nearly 100 members of Congress are pro-choice Catholics. So the bishops, obviously, uh, this stoked their ire. And the day the, the Joe Biden's uh, election was called, they had a letter ready for him telling him that he was creating confusion in the church. And it's that kind of condescending language, I think, from the bishops that really does turn off Catholics who otherwise would like to participate. Because again, we have bishops who don't want to listen to the voices of people. The first thing the bishop should be doing is speaking to women who have had abortions and listening to their stories and listening to the suffering and the human toll when people are barred from this kind of care. So it's a really pivotal moment, particularly for Catholics for choice, because we're very aware that there are Catholics who are otherwise pretty progressive, who just have so much taboo around abortion. And those are the people we really want to talk to and educate and engage into deep listening with, because I just think there's an incredible amount of misinformation, uh, an incredible uh, overbearing amount of stigma. For example, this whole idea that life begins at conception well, the scientific reality is that 60 to 80 percent of fertilized eggs are washed out of the body. So what does that mean? And what does that say about God who orders this, this sort of natural process? I don't think a lot of Catholics understand that. I don't think they know the difference between conception and implantation. So we just we want to do that basic education about human reproduction. We also really want to call attention to what we call the invention of abortion, which happened in the 1970s, where you had some very radical right wing white men who were, you know, feeling powerless and wanting to, you know, get their political power back and landed on the issue of abortion as the activating issue. And that has profound roots in white supremacy and now in uh, Christian nationalism. And so I think if we point out particularly the racist roots of using the abortion issue in this way, I think it would really open people's eyes. And that's the work we really want to do. Who are the individuals that you're referring to? Are the particular architects of this movement that you have in mind? Yeah, absolutely. In the 1970s, Paul Weyrich is really considered the architect, Phyllis Schlafly, characters like that. And of course, this movement was created out of the minds of a number of right-wing bishops. And I think what was motivating bishops was the fear about women's equality, which has always terrified them. It still terrifies them. Remember, this is a church that refuses to have women have any authority or decision-making power or, or voice. And so the idea of giving women some kind of freedom, once a woman has freedom to control her fertility, it opens her up to all kinds of power and freedoms, uh, economic, vocationally, and that terrifies the bishops. There is this argument that I often hear of this like fear of women being in power, yet Phyllis Shafley, um, Amy Coney Barrett, and there's so many others who are in fact very strong, vocal women who identify deeply with their faith, who are using right. their power to introduce their point of view through various mechanisms. Is it fair to say that there aren't Catholic women who are actually exercising a significant amount of power? 
at least from where I sit, there are quite a few women who take a different position than Catholics for Choice. And they are, just as you are, deeply rooted in their beliefs and in their worldview. There absolutely are. And what makes me sad is ultimately they're working against their own self-interest. And that is very, very painful for me to see. So Phyllis Schlafly, uh, you know, was was a tool of the patriarchy. You know, she was a soldier in the army of the patriarchy. And to the extent to which she was conscious of that remains, I think, unclear. Amy Coney Barrett was part of a very fringe group of Catholics that has a very strict gender binary and hierarchy which reasserts this fundamental idea that the Catholic Church wants to, I think, impose on the United States, which is that men are meant to take authority and be leaders and women are meant to be servants. And so, um, you know, these, yes, is Amy, these women are, they're brilliant in their own way. They exert power. But again, it's to perpetuate the patriarchy and ultimately undermine themselves and all women. I want to shift for a moment to the Mississippi case. I understand that Catholics for Choice filed an amici brief along with 57 other faith-based organizations, including the National Council of Jewish Women, Muslim Advocates, an array of faith-based organizations. Can you tell us a little bit about why it's important from your organization's perspective to have that voice in the court? Absolutely. Uh, Again, this goes back to our desire to make it clear to the courts and to the American public that people of faith do support abortion rights and to reclaim that moral high ground on the issue. We think the central tenets of our faith compel us to advocate for communities that have been historically marginalized and discriminated against and to make sure they have access to the care they need, the health care they need, and the same freedom to make decisions concerning their reproductive health. So all of these faith-based organizations were really motivated by concern for the marginalized and the vulnerable. And also concern for each other, because the fact is there's a movement to impose one theory of life uh, on everyone else. And there are plenty of traditions that don't ascribe to that. Like Judaism, they do not, you know, believe a fetus is a life. And so it actually violates their religious freedom to impose these kinds of laws. That differing points of view, the theological differences that exist across different traditions. How important is it, do you think, for people of faith to be able to kind of look at this issue and these laws through that lens? I think that progressive people of faith realize they have to take the narrative back, take it out of the hands of the Christian right wing because it's nationalist and it's white supremacist and it is a danger to democracy. Jamie Manson is the president of Catholics for Choice. She's a graduate of Yale Divinity School, where she earned her master's in divinity studies with her mentor, Sister Margaret Farley. That's all for this week's show. This week's producers are Kevin McCarthy and Kimberly Winston. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, a member of the Sisters of Loretto. This program is produced by Interfaith Voices, a nonprofit organization dedicated to educating the public and fostering understanding. We rely on your generous donations and support to continue our work. And in this season of giving, I invite you to learn more ways that you can do that at interfaithradio.org. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Wherever you are, I hope you are well, I hope you are safe, and I'll see you next week.